Good to have you. Happy Labor Day to you. My name is John Chambers. I'm the uh, pastor here, or some of you call me Fud. It's a nickname. Um, my mom still loves me. She calls me John. Um, but I wanted to kind of give you an, a, an, an update of what's going on. It's Labor Day, and normally we've been kind of going through the book of Matthew. We've been going through the book of Matthew for about a year and a half now, and uh, we took a little two-week break for gospel-centered discipleship, um, a new discipleship program we're instituting here at Remedy. And so um, we're actually going to continue in a break on Matthew. And let me kind of give you the, the, the uh, plan for the fall, if you will, and then let you know what's, how it's working out. Today, we're doing a, a standalone sermon. It just doesn't connect to a series. It's just one kind of standalone sermon, and it's going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. Next week, we're actually going to start in the book of Philippians, and we're going to go through Philippians for about 10 weeks, maybe 12. Knowing me, it could be longer. And then um, I have been in Matthew for a year and a half, so come on. Um, So after that, we're going to begin Matthew. And depending on how close we are to Christmas, we'll either start Matthew or we'll do a little bit of Christmas and then go to Matthew. So I promise you we're getting to Matthew if you're like, why is he not doing, uh, we're going. We're uh, we're going back to Matthew. We will finish it out sometime, maybe by 2015. Um, But we, (laughs) I I, I kid, but kind of not. So we're going to... uh, to be in Hebrews 13 today. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Hebrews 13 and um, give you an idea of what this standalone sermon is all about today after we pray. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time where we can come here and worship you together as believers, and even for people that might not know Christ, they can come and they can hear about Christ, hear about the gospel, hear about salvation, hear about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and the exclusivity that Jesus claims, um, that he is the only true God and that salvation can only be found in him. And Lord, I pray for myself that you would help me this morning. I need a special measure of grace here, as I always do, to proclaim truth. And I am um, recognizing that I'm absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to come and speak through me, that I, I have nothing to say without him. And anything I say, it's fruitless unless he comes behind it and bear witness that it would be true and drive it down deep into the hearts and souls of me and everyone here. And so, Lord, would you come and do that this morning? Um, I just confess my need for you and, and all of our needs that we would be re- deeply reminded of who Christ is and our, and our deep need for him in the gospel. We love you, Lord, and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, I want to confess to you that as far as sermons go, I'm coming up swinging for the fences. I'm not hoping to just put the ball in play. If you don't know what baseball, I'm talking about baseball. I'm swinging for the fences. I'm taking a big cut today, and I'm going all out, hopefully, as I'm challenging you and and challenging myself that we would consider some of the things that Christ is wanting us to um, consider this morning and take this challenge up and live a life that is dominated for the glory of God and for worship. And so um, that's, that's the goal I have today, that we're going to be looking at this last little chapter in Hebrews chapter 13, and that it would, as it has this kind of this week and some circumstances that I'm going to talk about for this week, have, would maybe realign you or refocus you onto Christ and that you wouldn't find yourself being um, drawn away from him into ease and comfort, drawn away into things, but that you would... Be focused in on Christ because this life we have is short. So I'm, I'm swinging for the fences today for all of us, including my own heart, um, and that he would do something amazing today. Now, in my life, I've noticed that the fall, especially this time we're in, we're kind of in the fall where it was the last couple of weeks and the next couple of weeks, and it's finally not going to be, you know, 
a thousand degrees outside anymore. As I've heard, I don't know, but I've heard it's chilly in this room today. Um, but it's going to actually start getting chilly outside uh, as well. I don't ever get like cold on Sunday morning. So I, if y'all are cold, I've been told it's really freezing. Sorry. Um, wrap up in some blankets or whatever. Um, so anyway, uh, what, we're go- what I've noticed over the course of the fall in my, my life thus far is that the fall seems to be the last couple of weeks and the next couple of weeks, the time that I introduce myself to people more than ever. I say my name, I say where I'm from, I say my age, I say I'm married, I say I have kids, etc. Et it seems to be more than any other time of the season or of the year that we do introductions. We do introductions to teachers. Uh, you know, we're trying to figure out if this teacher's nice, if they're going to fail me, how many classes can I miss, etc. Or if you are a teacher, you're trying to help the, te- the, the students feel like you really love them, you actually do care for them, that you're not the meanest in the world. You've, you've been introduced to neighbors. We just had a neighbor come to our uh, neighborhood this past week. You know, everybody moves during the summer, and then after they start school, they always try. And so this is an opportunity to meet neighbors and go out when it's not blazing hot outside. You can let your kids run around in the front yard and, and meet them. You can meet friends. You're probably at college meeting tons of people right now, um, asking you to join their group, asking you to join their whatever. And so you have an opportunity. To, you have to say who you, who you are. You're, you're meeting roommates. Um, perhaps you did a potluck, and you're asking right now, are they really going to have the smell their whole semester or the entire year? And maybe they will. Who knows? But you did a potluck and you didn't know who they are and you got stuck with somebody. Or um, you're just meeting people in class. You're meeting all kinds of stuff. Um, You're meeting people at church if you're here for the first time. Um, I'm a soccer coach and so I'm going to be meeting people in the next couple weeks. Well, I should kind of I coach a soccer team. I'm not really a soccer coach. Um, you know, the, the extent of mine is like, kick it harder. Don't touch with your hands. You know, pass it to the guy that's really good and let him kick it. Um, but, so I'm not really, I coach little kids. So obviously I'll never be an upper, upper echelon coach. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, so the fall is kind of dominated through introductions. And the point of the introductions is where we're trying to explain who we are, what we do, and what we're all about. And so what I want to do this morning for those of you that are Christians, or maybe that aren't, is introduce you to the Christian life. And if you are a Christian, to maybe reintroduce you to the Christian life. And the reason why I think this is important is um, I even felt the absolute need for this just this week in my life. I had the opportunity to uh, preach at Campus Crusade this past Thursday. And um, <laughs> this past Thursday, if, if some of you know, maybe you don't, was the first week of Gamecock football. And they, it started on Thursday. Now, I made a mistake. I didn't, when pe- when I, whenever I was asked to speak at crew, I was like, yeah, sure. I love, I love the opportunity. Thank you very much. And I didn't consult the Gamecock football schedule back in the summer when I said yes. And so I realized as it started getting closer, oh, Game one is the same night as crew. And so, I mean, I promise you I did this. I went to crew, and as they were doing opening games, I was literally watching the game on my phone, waiting for my time to preach. And then after it was over, whenever they're doing closing announcements, I was like putting it back up and like, Connor Shaw got hurt. What's going on? You know, I was, I, was, I was doing that. And so, I, confession time, um, because I was kind of all along the day um, misplacing my worship of Jesus on college football, specifically in the area of Gamecocks football. And um, I've noticed that there's been a time in my life where, you know, I was really into Gamecock football. And then I had this time where I went to seminary and it's just, you're just kind of like stored away in a cave for years in seminary. So you have really no idea what's going on. And I didn't care anything about sports or any of that kind of stuff. And then I've come back out of that. And now I'm starting to care about sports, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying watching football is a sin. I I watch it. Um, I watched it yesterday. But here's what I noticed. And here's, here's kind of the reason why I think it's just and so important for us to reintroduce ourselves to Christianity. Um, because of what happened to me on Thursday night, I think is a danger for all of us. 
and you can take sports or you can take your, your love of whatever, but there's a danger that happens. And this is how it manifested itself right for me in that day. At the very end, after it's over, they're kind of doing some introduction or some, some closing things and I'm watching the game. And then a guy comes up to me, he's from Iraq and he's a brand new student here. And he, in just a couple minutes, he lets me know that he's a Muslim. And so, and he's basically trying to say that, um, Christianity and Islam are basically the same, all kind of religions. And I, and I was like, you know, I don't really like to get involved, if you know me. That's not true. And so I was like, well, that's not true. You know, we need to have a conversation about that for sure. I don't want you leaving here thinking that's the, that's the case at all. But he came and started talking to me while I had the game on. And so here's where I'm, I want to talk about my heart for a second. In that, I'm having a serious conversation about the gospel with, a, with this guy. And all of a sudden, inside of my heart, I feel the need to want to pay more attention to the football game than to someone who's in a bankrupt system who's dying and going to hell because he doesn't know Jesus. Now, I didn't do it. I didn't look at my phone and check the score. I put it in my pocket and I I shared the gospel with this guy. But my point is that I felt it in my heart. I felt it at that moment that there's something that I would prize and treasure above the gospel, above evangelism, above Jesus in that moment. And I, I didn't like it at all. I didn't like it. Um, and so I think that for all of us, there's a chance that for, that there's occasions in our life where we need to be reintroduced to the Christian life and just be reminded how short of it it is and how important it is to be on mission and how important it is that God is calling us to a lot of things. And there are so many things vying for our worship that if we're not careful, we will place those things above and in a moment of weakness, you might not withstand temptation. I mean, I was right in front of the guy, so it had been really rude to like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. But um, in, in moments of weakness where nobody's around and they don't know, at least my, I know my heart, I will give over. And so I think for all of us, it's important as we go into the fall with all the vast potentialities, that's not a word probably, but opportunities um, of this fall and all the things that Jesus can do with us this coming fall, all the opportunities we have to share the gospel, to put sin to death, to be more holy, to be more on mission, all these opportunities that lay lay out into the fall, I think it's good for us to get our bearings and be on mission and be reintroduced to the Christian life. So that's my goal today. I'm gonna give you some things that would reintroduce you to the Christian life. My heart and desire here is that you would be introduced or reintroduced to what it means to be a believer. So I'm coming after your head and I'm hoping that from your head it goes to your heart and after it goes to your heart, it doesn't, it doesn't hit a dead end there or hit a cul-de-sac. I want you to do something when you leave. I want you to go out and it goes from your head to your heart, out to your hands and you're seeing yourself actively making difference in your community, actively killing sin in your life, actively pursuing wholeness, actively sharing the gospel. I want it to do something in your heart today. Now, before we jump in, you need to know that everything I'm going to say today, everything that you're going to hear today is assuming that you are a believer. It's based on the fact that you are a believer. So if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, um, it's, I'm assuming that you are. And what it means is, I'm assuming that you understand the gospel, which is that Christ himself, God himself, came down and lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived but we're incapable of. And because we're incapable of it, God has um, said that when we sin, we inherit or we'll receive eternal death. We'll receive hell. And the only way that we can be 
excused or pardoned or receive forgiveness of that is that if someone that's perfect die in our place or live a perfect life, which none of us will. And so Christ came and lived that perfect life, died on the cross for us. And when he died, all of his righteousness, all of his perfection that he had was then imputed to us or given to us. Um, And all of our sin and all the wrath that we were supposed to get was then put on Christ by God. And the great exchange, as Martin Luther said, occurred. And now we are in Christ and we're righteous. And so this sermon is for those who are believers, who have experienced that great transaction. So I want you to see some, uh, some things about the Christian life that perhaps you already know that maybe you need to be reintroduced to. Because this fall, I want you to see absolutely amazing things in your life and not have the danger of temptation to wander away from the Savior we love. I don't want that. I know you don't want that. So let's look at um, Hebrews 13, starting with verse 1. And uh, there's just, these aren't like the 10 things of Christian belief. There's, there's tons, but these are, these are 10 things that the writer of Hebrews gives us. The writer of Hebrews, it, it's thought that this entire book here is actually a sermon. This is a very theological, deep theological book. If you look at verse 22 in chapter 13, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my, quote, word of exhortation. This word of exhortation is um, in the New Testament thought of to be the same kind of phrase or um, phrasing for a sermon. And so this is more than likely the the entire book of Hebrews is a sermon. If you read it, it would take you about 50 minutes. Unless you're me, it would take you about seven hours. But um, it would take you about 50 minutes. And so this is more than likely a sermon. As a matter of fact, um, in all of the New Testament, all the recorded sermons that we have are all preached towards unbelievers. As you read through the narrative, they're all, you know, in the book of Acts or et cetera. Those are all sermons that are, that are given towards unbelievers. This is actually the, the sermon in the New Testament that is written towards believers. So you have a, a, a sermon from a Christian written to believers, the only one in the New Testament. And that's what this is. And as he's concluding his sermon, he's writing a conclusion in chapter 13 for us. And what I think this conclusion in chapter 13 is perfect for us to know this Christian life, a, a, a reminder, if you will, of the things that are important in the Christian life. And I'm basing this all on the fact that you are all believers in Jesus. Look at verse one. Let brotherly love continue. So here's the first thing, just as a reintroduction to the Christian life for us all, including me. I'm not just preaching to you. I'm I'm preaching to myself this morning, probably mainly to myself. Love one another deeply. Love one another deeply. That's verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Romans 12 verses nine and 10 carries the same idea. And it says, says it this way. Let love be genuine. Let love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. There should be a deep, abiding, pervasive love for your fellow man in your life. Christian or non-Christian, same economic status of you or not, same racial um, or not, same whatever, it doesn't matter. You should have a deep and abiding, pervasive love for one another. This is exactly how Christ felt about people. This is what he did when he walked around. It was just obvious to everyone that Jesus had a deep, love for people. And he spoke the truth to them. That's why he, he loved the Pharisees through speaking the truth to them. But he loved everyone, and we should as well. The Christ, there should be no doubt that we're believers because we love others. First John. Verse 2, do not neglect to show some hospitality. This is just an, an, one specific example of how we can obey this command in verse 1. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. We could go down that 
that rabbit trail of entertain angels, but we're not going to. So that's an example of, of, of love is, is hospitality. Verse three is our next one. Look at this. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with, with them and those who are mistreated since you are also, since you also are in the body. Now, verse three is the second one. And I want us to think about, I'm not discounting that we shouldn't visit people in prison. I know that Jesus tells us actually in the book of Matthew that we should visit people in prison. But these people who are in prison are not in prison like for today. Today they're in prison um, for more than likely committing crimes. Back here, um, in this context, this isn't why they're in prison. If you flip one page over, you'll see why I think that they're in prison. Look at uh, Hebrews 10 starting at verse 32, and we can see why these particular people are in, in prison, and that'll help us understand the second point of a reminder of the Christian life. Verse 32, 1032, 1032 of Hebrews. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. This is, this is persecution of Christians. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partner with those so treated. For you had compassion, here it is, on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So these people that the writer of Hebrews is speaking of are in prison because of persecution for the faith, not crime committing. It may have been a crime there, but they weren't you know, going out and doing atrocities. They were simply living out their Christian life and being persecuted for it, and some of them were thrown into prison. So back over to 13.2 when he says, remember those who are in prison. I think the big idea is this, number two. Remember and care for those who are persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. Maybe they're in prison, maybe they're not. Maybe they're in America, maybe they're not. Maybe they're your roommate. Maybe they're down the street. I don't know. But the big idea that we as Christians should be saying, that, that the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to, as we're reintroduced to the Christian life, is this, that we should remember and care for those who are persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. Now, here's, here's at least for me, the, the convicting thing. I don't, I don't really know too many people that are convicted and persecuted for the faith. I know some, but not a lot. So how can I do this? It, it's something I think about a lot. Um, I think that we can just leave it at this. If you know no one, you're not aware of anyone at all that's being persecuted for it. And I know it's different here in America. Persecution is different than it is in the 1040 window or in Sudan or in Southeast Asia. But if you're not aware of or know people that are being persecuted for their faith in Christ... Perhaps you have put yourself in such a Christian safe bubble that you might be moving away from, and we're going to get to this in a second, what it is that Christ would have for you and remembering that this life is always just supposed to be a a mist, a vapor, and that we're supposed to be living for something else and that we should not find our highest joy and comfort and ease in this life because we're not promised ease and joy and comfort in this life. 11 out of the 12 disciples were killed. So we should think about those who are persecuted for their faith. Keep going in verse four. Um, There's a lot of them, so I have to keep moving. Uh, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So here's the third reminder of those of you that are in the Christian life. 
stay pure sexually. Whether you are already in marriage or one day hope to be married, stay pure sexually. Um, If you have already failed, it doesn't mean that you're an outcast and somehow a horrible person if you're in Christ. That, that's not, it's not, I'm not saying this to make you feel terrible. I'm saying that where you are now, stay pure sexually. If you are outside of marriage and you are not married and you want to be and you're, praise, you're pleading with the Lord, please don't give me the gift of singleness, God. Please don't give me the gift. That's not a gift to me. Um, I, don't want to, I don't want that. I, I'm, I'm encouraging you, especially in your 18 to 28-year-old as you're waiting or preparing. We're, we're slowly and slowly getting married later in America. I think that's a mistake, but we are. And I'm just pleading with you, and the scriptures are pleading with you, stay pure sexually. There are many terrible consequences that will be piled onto that if you don't. I know it's difficult if you're outside of marriage. And those of you that are in marriage, it, it may feel and act different. Maybe adultery is not something you would ever think of, but if we can think about um, Matthew 5, those who even look at or think about um, someone in a sexual way, we've already committed adultery in our heart. And that's not just guys, that's girls as well. If only my husband would, then I would finally be happy. You know, and fill in the blank. So the encouragement I think for all of us is, this is a big deal. I mean, there's, there's places in the Bible where when it talks about sexual morality, it tells you to flee from it. It doesn't say stand there and fight sexual morality like a boxer. It says flee from it. There's other sins that you might be able to fight, but I think this is one that we would need to, as believers, flee from. Stay pure sexually. This is huge, especially in the culture and context in which we live where everything's sexually charged. Everything. It's always being thrown at us at every commercial or, or whatever. Just my daughter. She's seven, eight. How old is she? She's eight. Just the other day, we're, last two nights ago, we were watching football, and uh, maybe it was yesterday. I'm raising her right. She's already on football. She says, uh, we always mute the commercials because they're just terrible. She, she, she's already eight and she realized, she goes, I wish that they would just on TV show commercials that weren't terrible that we had to mute and couldn't look the other way. I mean, this is America. I mean, it's everywhere, right? So you have to, you have to be on vigilant standby, making sure that you are always staying pure sexually and never allowing yourself to be taken over by that. We need to keep moving. Verse five, keep your life free from the love of money. Notice he's not saying keep your life away from money. Free from the love of money. There is a difference. Although money is dangerous, the love of money is dangerous. But here it says, um, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Whether you have a lot or not, Jesus is still saying, you don't need those things. I'm with you. Be content with me. I'm enough. But here's the thing. Verse four, or the fourth reintroduction to Christianity is that you should use your money for the glory of God. Whether it's a little or whether it's a lot, you should use your money for the glory of God. Um, I don't know where you are. I was kind of raised where you are along in this, but I was kind of raised to think of, um, at least in the churches that I, I kind of attended is, you know, when you, whenever you get your money, you know, you get your lump sum, you take that fraction and you throw it over to God and you say, there's your fraction. Thanks for this big deal. Now this big deal, I can just do whatever I want to with it because God's, you know, he gave me all this stuff. I can do whatever I want. And I, I've learned as I've, I've grown by God's grace is that whenever he gives me this lump sum, I do take that and I give it to him, but I'm still absolutely responsible for this other bit to spend it to the glory of God as well. Not on whatever I want. That's not my money. All of it's God's. I give some to him and I have to spend this to the glory of God as well. 
So just remember that it's not like, here, God, here's your, your 10 or 15 or whatever it is you give, and you take your 90 or 85 and you just spend it on whatever you want. All of your money is given to God, given to you by God, to use for the glory of God, whether little or much. Um, and in America, and today, and we're all part of the top, whatever it is, percent, we're all rich. We are. We're probably all going to eat three times today. Every single one of us. It, it, it might be ramen noodles for some of you college students, but you're going to eat. You're going to eat. So we're all rich. Um, speaking of this love of money, this caution of love of money, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money, the love of money, don't miss that, is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is a dangerous thing. And it will cause some of people to wander away from the faith. That's why I say you need to make sure that all of your money that you have, resources, gifts, whatever you want to say, is used for the glory of God. That's why it's given to you. If you read on in 1 Timothy 6 after he gives that warning, in verse 17 he says, don't set your money, don't set your hope on money. Instead, set all of your hope on God. That's the final exhortation, I think, when it comes to money. Set your hope on God because money could go. At any time it could go. Therefore, the thing that never goes, he will never leave you and never forsake you. Set your hope on that. Continuing on um, in this next one, well, we can read verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. That's connecting up to money. Uh, verse 7 and 8 and verse 17 are going to serve for us to be our fifth one. And so let me read 7 and 8, and then we'll read 17, and we'll see how all those kind of fit together for the fifth reminder or reintroduction to the Christian life. Look what it says at verse 7. Remember your leaders. We're going to see how there's similarities between 7 and 8 and 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Flip over to 17. There's a... There's a um, motif, if you will, of watching leaders. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those to have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we can see in 7 and 8 and 17 that he's telling them they need to remember their leaders, they need to imitate their leaders' faith, and they also need to obey and submit to their leaders. Now, whatever church you go to, if it's here or whatever church you go to, this is This is not a suggestion. This is him telling you, whoever it is that's above you, you should actively be making sure that you are submitting to them and and obeying them. Um, And we're going to talk about, there's caveats on that. I I understand. We're going to address that in just a second. But provided that they're pursuing after Jesus, you should obey them. And why? Because they're watching over your souls. They're not just kind of doing whatever they want. They are actively pursuing your sanctification with you because they know God is going to hold them accountable for it. And you shouldn't do it with groaning, but with joy because that's how it's advantageous to you. So you should, um, you can see here, uh, is obey and submit to your leaders. And then the, sec- the rest of number five is look to them, watch them, imitate their faith in Christ who never changes. Christ is the one that never changes. And so you should look them, you should watch them. You can see this in verse seven where it says, consider, that word consider, this word consider isn't just like, you know, you're kind of walking down and like in the grocery store and you notice there's some fruit and you kind of keep going or whatever, you know, fill in the whatever. But this idea of consider means to look at and then to look again 
and then to look again and to continually find yourself looking and you're considering and you're contemplating and you're watching. As a matter of fact, when it says imitate, this is, again, not just the idea of contemplating it, making some observations, maybe even admiring their faith and like, that's awesome for you. Glad that works. Awesome. And like, that's not, this imitate literally means imitate. There's no like hidden Greek word there. It means to do the things that they're doing. Why would he say that? Why would he not just tell us to look at Jesus? Why would he tell us to look at leaders as well as Jesus? Because tangible people need tangible examples. We just do. Now, here's the caveat. Who is it that we should look at? Um, We are not just supposed to follow blindly people. Look what it says. Consider the outcome of their way of life. If it's a bankrupt life, we don't imitate. If it's as long as it is, pursuing Jesus, our tangible selves need tangible examples. We are told here to remember them and to imitate their faith. And then right after that, the writer of Hebrews geniusly, because he's led by the Spirit, maybe he's just a genius, put in verse 8, which I think is awesome. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's not just a random verse. It's not like he was writing through verse 7. He kind of fell asleep and he woke up in the middle of the night and he's like, oh yeah, this is a good verse. I'll put it there and then went back to sleep. And then it's not like a a midnight like line. It actually connects to verse 7 in that when your leaders aren't pursuing Christ, remember, leaders die, leaders change. Sometimes they will fail you and you should imitate them. But remember, Jesus Christ is the one that never fails you. He is the one that stays the same always. And so we do look to leaders and we imitate their faith. But when they fail or when they change or when they die, remember that they were were pursuing Jesus. We are not just pursuing them as an end. We're pursuing them to know Jesus because he's the one that never changes. So I think this is what this means for us. If you don't have someone in your life that you are following after imitating a leader or whatever in your life where you can look at them and say, they are spiritually speaking, further along the road than I am. And I'm not saying that they're more saved than you. I believe that once we're saved, we're always saved. We're given the full righteousness of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. But I think you know what I mean. Like for those that have been in the faith five years or those that have been in the faith 50 years, those people that have been in the faith 50 years, they seem to know a little bit more about what it means to be a believer. And I'm saying you need to identify those people in your life and come along the side of them and say ahead of time, Lord, please give me and help me find favor in their eyes. And you come up to them and you say, I believe it's important for me to have someone ahead of me that I can follow after, imitate Christ. And I see that in you. And I was wondering if we could get together and we could do life together, as well as for those of you that are Christians, you should have people on the other side that you're actively bringing along. There's always people that we should have that we're, we're learning from and we're bringing along side by side. So obey and submit to your leaders provided they're following and pursuing Christ. And you should have these people. If, if you have a long period of time where you don't, I, I think it's troublesome because we need examples. We really do. Um, look, keep going into verse nine. Um, and this is gonna lead us into our next one. Now, this is kind of a complex thing, but very, very simple uh, point. But let, let, me, let me teach it to you here. Verses nine through 11. Verses nine through 11. There's a, uh, there's a strange teaching that's happening in the first century. And this is what it is. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. So he's, he's telling them there's a strange teaching that you have the possibility of being led away into. Don't let this happen. This can happen for us, but this is the context of first century. And then we'll look at it, what it means here. And he says this. 
Don't be led away by strange teaching, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Okay? Now, this four means I need to pay attention to the previous verse. It's good for my heart to be strengthened by grace. I want my heart to be strengthened by grace. I don't want my heart to be strengthened by diverse and strange teachings, but instead by grace. So where's the source of this grace that I need my heart to be strengthened by? Is it in something, obviously God, or this strange and diverse teaching? Look what he says. Um, Not by foods which have which have not benefited those devoted to them. So there are some people, the strange and diverse teaching that's happening in the first century that are trying to have their hearts be strengthened by grace by pursuing foods. And he's saying, that's not right. If we remember back in the first century that um, foods were being sacrificed and, and animals were being sacrificed. And so they're saying that if you remember, if you read the whole book of Hebrews, you know that this is kind of a dominant theme that the once and all, uh, once, and, um, once for all sacrifice of Jesus is now what we need, not animal sacrifices. And so he's saying this strange and diverse teaching, you should not have your, trying to let your heart be strengthened by grace, by foods. And you can says, see this in verse 10. This is, this is, this is the key. We have an altar. We Christians have an altar. We don't have the altar where animals are sacrificed anymore to try to find strength and grace. Instead, we have an altar where the ultimate sacrifice has already been done. Our altar is the cross of Christ. So here we go. Which, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So the, all that to say this. The, the um, sixth reminder of reintroduction to Christianity is that we should not allow ourselves to be led away from Christ to false teachings. Instead, we should cling to our altar, not diverse crazy teachings that are trying to give us grace, but the only thing that we constantly remember that gives us grace, which is the cross of Christ, the gospel. So complex thing when it narrows down to a really simple thing, which is this. Let your life be gospel-centered. Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his death on the cross is the only place for continual findings of grace. That's it. And you should only go to that for grace. The cross. Never leave the cross. So this is the uh, sixth one that he's telling us, is that you need to be thoroughly gospel-centered. The fuel for your whole Christian life comes from the grace that we receive or the strengthening of grace that we receive from the cross of Christ. Now, Notice that last little phrase there in verse 11, where he says, where it's outside the camp. And now he's going to, in verse 12, use this phrase, outside the gate. I believe outside the camp and outside the gate are synonymous phrases. And he's, he's building into something, which we're going to see in just a second. But um, I want you to see something in verse 12 first before we get to that. So it says, these sacrifices for sin are burned outside the camp, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. So there's, that's where sacrifices are made. It's outside the camp, outside the gate. And that's where Jesus at Golgotha was, was killed for us, outside the camp. And then it says this, in order, Jesus died in order to sanctify the people through his blood. So let's just take that word sanctify and think about that for a second for our seventh one. Jesus died for you to be sanctified. Therefore, pursue it. Now this is, I think this is huge. This is huge. Um, in Baptist circles who, where we are and predominantly where evangelism seems to be the big thing, we are really good at reminding people that Jesus died for you to be justified. Salvation is, is regeneration. Whenever God comes and awakens our heart and 
helps us understand the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the fact that he came to die for us. And if we put our faith that we can be forgiven, that's regeneration. And then by faith, we believe. And that's when we're justified. And that's when we are declared righteous, declared innocent, the courtroom of God where he says, you are now righteous. And Jesus did die for you to be justified. But not, that's not all. I want you to remember, after your justification, that one time thing where Jesus says, you are now a child of God, you've been adopted, you've been reconciled from that moment to the rest of your life, you still breathe, you still live, you still deal with sin for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And Jesus died for you to be justified, but he absolutely died for you to be sanctified. Therefore, pursue it. Don't find yourself, and again, I'm preaching to myself, not just you. Don't just be satisfied in being justified. We must also be satisfied with being sanctified. We must pursue actively sanctification or Christ-likeness or holiness, whatever word you need. You must actively pursue it. There are multiple promises from the New Testament that says that Jesus died for us, and it's a promise. Therefore, we must actively pursue Christ-likeness, all the while remembering that as we grow in holiness, as we grow in Christ-likeness, That is not making us more acceptable, more righteous before God. That's already settled at justification. Instead, based on the righteousness, based on the justification of God, we are working from it. We are seeking holiness from it. That's how we see sin get put to death. That's how we grow. So I just want to exhort you all, and and maybe this isn't you, but this is me. I have to daily remind myself to fight for sanctification. Because I will, and maybe you will, be lazy. I will not find sin disgusting. There's a pastor that lived a few hundred years ago. He says this. I think this is so great. Until your sin becomes bitter, Christ will never become sweet. And it's just, I think it's so true. I find Christ more and more sweet, the gospel more and more sweet, forgiveness more and more sweet. The more I'm repulsed, the more I'm bitter towards sin and not easy and comfortable and satisfied with it. Therefore, I think all of us need to pursue sanctification. It's sure. It's the design of Jesus. He promised it. He died for it. And he wants you to pursue it. And all the while, while you do it, Philippians 2, 10 through 12, all the while, while you do it, you're working and then you see it was God at work in you. Oh, that's so beautiful. And he gets the glory, not us. Praise God he gets the glory because I did not do it. But praise God he's sanctifying me some. So, Now I want to continue in this this phraseology of outside the camp, outside the gate. And I want you to see this as we're going into verse 13. He said that sacrifices are made in verse 11 outside the camp. And then in verse 12, he said, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. And then look at verse 13 and says, therefore, notice where we are, our proximity as believers. And notice where Jesus's proximity is. And I think this might be the case for a lot of Christians. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he has endured. Where's Jesus? Outside the camp. Where are we? Probably inside the camp. So let's look at this. Um, We're in number eight. Eight. Here's the eighth one. Go to him outside the camp and bear reproach. And by that, I mean, that's just the literal wording of the verse 13. But by that, I mean this. All of us must be willing to go and suffer in any way possible in order to do evangelism, in order to be outside the camp 
with Jesus. I think the big question that we should ask and ask ourselves is, where is Jesus outside the camp? Where am I? It seems like I'm inside the camp. What does that mean? What does inside the camp look like for us today? This is what I think it means. And maybe you can just evaluate your life right now and see if that's where you are. I notice a lot of times it's where I am. He says this. Um, I, I, I think this is what it means. Are we safely nestled in our Christian community? I say, he says this, I wrote this. And so I don't know why I did this weird third person thing. Um, <laughs> but I wrote, um, are we safely nestled inside our Christian community? Which means we're probably not with Jesus. Or are we outside the camp where the sinners are? Um, and I believe the reason why we stay inside the camp is because, at least my heart is, deeply desiring comfort and ease almost at every level. And that's generally inside the camp. And I don't like to go outside the camp and, as he says, bear the reproach that he endured. But he's saying, come with me outside the camp. John Piper, um, in one of his books, I don't know which one, wrote this. If we want to make our people glad in God, our lives, and that's just it's written towards pastors, but it just means anybody. If we want to make our people glad in God, our lives must look as if God, not possessions, is our joy. So ease and comfort can't be the reason why we can't stay in there because if we want to make people glad in God, they won't be glad in God by ease and comfort. They already have that. So as we look at the life of Jesus, um, one thing's for sure as you look through the Gospels, he was clearly a friend of sinners. He was outside the camp with sinners, showing them continually that, that God was his joy And he was a friend of sinners, spending time with sinners in order that they could come to know God. And he's beckoning us to come outside there with him. And I think that that is the essence of the supremacy of Christ in evangelism, is that we would go out and be willing to go out, no matter what might happen, but we're willing to go out. Now, why would we do that? Why would we be willing to leave the ease and comfort to go out and bear reproach as we do evangelism, showing that Christ is our, 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 our joy. Why would we do that? I think that the writer of Hebrews tells us that in, in verse 14. He's going to make an argument why Christians should want to go outside the camp. Look what he says in 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You can't, you can't make your home here. Because it's temporary. Rock Hill's not your home. Fort Mill's not your home. Lake Wiley's not your home. Chester's, Lancaster, Columbia, Greenville, California, whatever your home is. That is not your home if you're in Christ. We don't, this is not our lasting city. We instead seek a city that is to come. So it makes no sense to retreat to ease and comfort and try to build a home here because it's all gonna get destroyed in our short vapor miss life. Instead, we seek the city that is to come. And as we seek the city that is to come, that means of course we're willing to go outside the camp because that's getting us closer and closer to our real home, which is in heaven with Christ. And so we seek the city that is to come, not this city that we're in. That's how we can show that um, we're willing to go outside the camp. We show that things are not our treasure, but instead Jesus is. 
We have no lasting city here, so we don't seek temporal things like houses and cars and phones and laptops or whatever it is that might be your idol or whatever it is that might tempt your heart away from Jesus. Instead, we seek our treasure. We don't want to make the mistake of the people that Paul's addressing in Romans 1 where they worship the created gifts of God rather than the creator. And I say gifts. These, these things are gifts. If you have a computer or a phone or a house or a job, it's not wrong to have those things. Just acknowledge that these are gifts from God. They're gifts. And if they are taken away, our posture should be the exact same posture of those in Hebrews 10.34. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they realized they had no lasting hope here or whatever the phrasing is. So when my phone is gone or my laptop is gone, I'm okay because that's not my joy. Jesus is my joy. I'm not happy, but I'm not fretting and like, oh, my life is over. Instead, Jesus is my joy and I'm seeking the city that is to come, not this one. There's a uh, quote from a guy, I'm pretty sure I've quoted this before, I I can't remember, but there's a quote from a guy named Howard Guinness who says this as he's beckoning in the 1930s, he's beckoning young people to start making their life count for Jesus, young women and young uh, men. He says, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death, who will lose their lives for Christ, flinging them away for love of him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in this service? Where are the men and women of prayer? Where are the men and women who will count God's word of more importance to them rather than even their daily food? Where are the men and women who, like Moses of old, commune with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend? Where are God's men and women in this day of God's power? when I read stuff like that, I just want to scream and yell and yes, I want to do that. Like, don't we all want that? That's who I want to be. I don't want this life to just be a waste. I want my life to be like the apostle Paul, as he says in Acts 24, Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what our lives should be. I told you, I'm swinging for the fences today, not just in your own heart, my own, but not just yours, but mine. I desperately want this to happen because I don't want and I don't like that feeling in my heart when I'm having a gospel conversation with someone that doesn't know Christ that I want to look at a football game. And whatever your idol is, I mean, maybe you have something like that, but it's so easy to find ourselves pulled away. And I'm not saying football's wrong. I'm going to probably watch some this afternoon. But... If you want that and treasure that and prize that and you're willing to push away Jesus and push away a a life that pursues the lasting city instead of this fleeting, fading city, then we're missing it. We're just missing it. And I think that um, this fall has so much opportunity for us. If we resolve right now as we are reintroduced to the Christian life and what is important, Think of the changes you can make in your workplace, in your school, in your home, in your neighborhood, and and, and all over as you live a life dominated by the gospel, not by stuff. As you put to death, um, as I'm hoping to, the things in my heart that don't pursue Christ. Philippians 3.10, Paul says he wants to share in the sufferings of Christ because I think the sweetest places of fellowship that we can have with Christ is whenever we share in the sufferings of Christ. If we remember Jesus, 
It says this in Luke 9. It says that Jesus, of Jesus, foxes have holes, birds of the, nests, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus had nothing and had everything. And so clearly we can as well. So that leads me into number nine, um, which is verse 14. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And I think that the ninth introduction, if you will, is don't make your home here. Live like this life is temporary, temporary, especially with your possessions, especially with your possessions. And we can see that in verse 16, where it says he exhorts them to share whatever they have. Don't neglect to do good and share what you have. And we do that because we realize all this stuff is not mine. It's all on loan and it's all going to go away anyway. So I don't have to have it. All I need is Christ. So here, that's the way they lived in Acts. Um, and so the last one I want us to see is right there in verse 15. So we've kind of done 14 and 16. The last reminder I want you to have is in verse 15 um, is this. Through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So this, this sacrifice of praise to God is the congregational context, the corporate gathering where we lift up our, our minds, our affections and our hearts to Jesus in a corporate context in worship, through song, through the hearing of the word, through the taking of the Lord's Supper, through the giving of our, of our tithes and offerings. This is the corporate context where we come together and we offer up the, the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's the first one, and then you continue on in 16. That's the corporate nature of worship, but it's also the lifestyle. After we walk out of here, we don't just worship for an hour and a half a week. We have another 160 hours we worship. So we worship as we walk out what it says in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So as we worship in the corporate context, it gives us fuel to go out and live a lifestyle of worship. And as we live a lifestyle of worship, that gives us a fuel that we come back into the corporate context. We are focused, we are set, we are we're eliminating distractions. We are all in, we've come prepared, we're ready to give glory to God. And so here's the last one. Um, worship, praise Christ with the fruit of your lips. Let all of your life, this is the 10th, I think, reawakening that maybe a lot of you need to have. Let all of your life be dominated by worship of Jesus, both corporately and in your lifestyle. Jesus is saying, all of your life should be dominated. Your entire life is a worship service to Jesus, not not just here, this isn't just a worship service. Your whole life is a worship service to him. So we're going to worship now in our corporate context. And hopefully that'll be the fuel that the Lord would use with his word and with the exhortations of the spirit that we would go out and live a lifestyle when we're done. But as we worship right here, um, this is the way it's going to look. We're going to worship with a song that's going to focus our minds and hearts on the gospel. Then we're going to worship at the table and then we're going to worship some more through song. And so... I'm going to pray and we're going to stand and we're going to sing out to Christ about the great gospel and the blood that he shed for us. And then I'll come up and lead us in a time of Lord's Supper. So let's pray together. Lord, I'm prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Lord, I'm prone to leave the God I love. But here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I feel my heart in the nature of its fickleness far too easily and I, I don't like it. And so, 
as we've perhaps been introduced or reintroduced to some of the things that a Christian should have in their life, I pray, Lord, that this last one would ring true and ring deep, that we would have a life dominated by worshiping Jesus in the corporate context and with our lives. Be with us now as we worship you. Holy Spirit, please come. Please come. We're dependent upon you here now. Move our affections. Move our worship. Move our love. Stir them up towards Jesus as we worship him now. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.